0: In this episode of The Bell Tale, the 2002 Castlereagh break in, how the IRA did it and what they took. It was certainly audacious. They walked in and walked out with what they came for. But who planned it and why?
2: We were told, and, and I believe, that Bobby story was the mastermind behind this.
0: What did the IRA do with the information they found? And what does it tell us about how compromised Republicans were by the security forces?
2: The IRA, I think they believed that, you know, if they had these files and they had the list of the informers, they could cleanse their organisation. They could almost clean it. But when they got it, I think that they were shocked by the level of infiltration.
0: I'm Kieran Dunbar, and joining me to tell the story of the IRA's raid is Belfast Telegraph security correspondent Alison Morris the castle raid break in remind us the background of this extraordinary
2: event i mean when you you think back to the raid it was on a St Patrick's Day in 2002 people think they know the story of that break-in but they don't really and and you know despite the fact that I have covered it extensively and spoken to some of the people who were closest to the ones who carried it out and spoke to people and you know the security services who give me ideas about what happened I don't even know the entire story you know and I don't think that we ever will because some of the people involved in it are now dead but basically what happened was Castle Ray in East Belfast was the headquarters of Special Branch of the RUC Special Branch Um, The RUC special branch, as we know, had been running informers throughout the conflict, both on the loyalist and the republican side. On St Patrick's Day 2002, that station was undergoing massive uh, building work. There was a lot of, you know, strangers maybe, builders coming and going. There was a lot of restructuring and it meant that the room, that the the files that were kept that held the details of that long list of informers and their handlers had been moved to a different room where it wouldn't usually be held. On that day, three people were able to walk in to Castle Ray disguised as builders with the help. We were told now by the police ombudsman of a member of catering staff who worked there. They knew the exact location of that room and they were able to go straight to it and remove those top secret files which held the kind of information that I I don't think even the people who stole those files knew just what was in them. And sometimes I wonder, are they sorry they stole them in the first place?
0: So basically they walked in
2: and they, they literally walked, walked out. Yeah, they walked in and walked out with the files. We were told and and I believe that Bobby Story, the very late Bobby Story, who will probably be known to most of the younger generation as the person who had the very large funeral during COVID that was attended by members of Sinn Féin and almost managed to bring down the executive. Bobby Story was the mastermind behind this. We know that uh, a chef, a guy that became known by the tabloids as Larry the Chef, who worked in that building, was arrested as well. He was a suspect. There was a decision by the prosecution not to charge him. They said it wasn't in the public interest. But a recent ombudsman report said that the Brickham and Castlereagh had been assisted by a member of catering staff, which was the first official confirmation, I suppose, that that was what the authorities believed had had happened. But, I mean, the the people involved, the IRA, I think they believed that, you know, if they had these files and they had the list of the informers, they could cleanse their organisation. They could almost clean it of all those informers but when they got it I think that they were shocked by the level of infiltration in terms of just exactly who those informers were.
0: So were they just very lucky or did they know exactly what they were looking for,
2: they knew exactly where they were going. They knew exactly what they were looking for. It was very carefully planned, planned with almost military precision. I think at the time there was a lot of misinformation that was given out, and the story that was coming from Republican circles was, "This is a false flag." You know, they've done this themselves. You know, this was carried out by British military, but it, it wasn't. I mean, it was, it was the IRA. They got the documents. That the problem was, the documents were coded in a way. So what I had been told. Um, and what I've seen from anything that I've looked at is that they contained the name of the handler, they contained the code name of the informant, and the address, and sometimes a phone number. This was long in the days before mobile phones would have been normally carried by people, so a lot of those numbers would have been house numbers of people's homes and the address, but. You know, I'm a girl from West Belfast and I have seven brothers and sisters. At one stage, ten of us lived in that house. So, if you had an address that said there was an informer who lived in this property and it was a family like mine, you would then have to try and work out who the informer was in that house. What they found out was the code names that were used, they all had a relevance. You weren't just given a random code name, the code name that you were given had a relevance to you in some way. So we later found out that Roy McShane, who was Gerry Adams' driver, who was one of the drivers for Sinn Féin, he was one of the people who was contained in those documents. He later fled Belfast. His code name was Chiefie, and that was how he referred to people. He'd have went, all right, Chief, when he's seen you, that was his code name. Another person who they believe was compromised because he was having an affair with a very high-profile Republican's wife, his code name was that Republican's wife's name. That was his code name. So the names all had a relevance. But then what the IRA had to do is they had to get somebody to um, decode these documents. So they had to go through them and try and match up the handler, the address, the code name, and they had to work out who the person was. That had to be done in a very top-secret fashion because at this stage, remember, we were already in a peace process. They were already signed up to a peace process. This would have been seen as a breach of their ceasefire. This gathering of information, um, and so that had to be done in a very top secret way, and only one or two people were involved in that process.
0: Can we jump back to the raid itself just momentarily? Why do you think so much information was relatively easily available? Why was it in the one place? Why didn't they separate this information in case this sort of thing happened? You know, and really, again, no one's been convicted of this, but. How did one person not affiliated directly to the security services know where this is? I don't know where things are in the Belfast Telegraph
2: (laughs) Um, so what happened was because there was so much construction work going around a lot of the security measures weren't in place as they would usually be Um, this information had basically been piled into a room where it wouldn't usually have been held um, and therefore they had information that was given them from an insider someone who worked within that building I don't think that they realise, and I don't think that actually was all the information, I do think that there was other information held in other places, um, but that was information that they were able to lift... I think that, you know, if we look at what way intelligence agencies are run now compared to what they were run then, it would be very different. You know, you wouldn't have a paper trail and you wouldn't have, you know, huge rooms of documents in the way you would have then. A lot of that would be coded. It would be, you know, electronically stored and it would be safely stored. Um, That wouldn't have been the case then. And what I have found in my 20 odd years as a journalist is that people tend to go straight to conspiracy or collusion And in at least 50% or more of the time, you'll find it is general cock-up. People are not as sophisticated as you think they are. Um, And the police at that time, and the RUC specifically, wouldn't have been as as sophisticated as some people might have thought they were. But also remember, this building was full of workmen from all over the place. I remember speaking to what would have been a very low-ranking police officer at the time, and his job was to take footprints from the ground as part of the investigation to try and see if they could match them up with shoes of the people who they thought were involved in the raid. And he said it was just impossible because there were so many workmen, there were so many work boots and there were so many footprints all over the place. It was, you know, near on impossible to try and narrow narrow it down. It was, I think, taking an opportunity to seize a moment of a lapse, in, you know, a lapse in security. But also there's another theory and another school of thought. When I was covering this story on the anniversary and the 10-year anniversary of it and I was speaking to people close to it and they said that there's in thinking time among some Republicans is that they were allowed to do it.
0: And a claim by an ex-RUC officer that the IRA was allowed to do it, that's been rejected, of course.
2: Of course it would be rejected, but when you think about it, there is a certain logic to them being allowed to do it because what they found when they received these documents was that they were infiltrated to a much greater degree than they believed they were. And they were infiltrated to a degree that people who were actually related to senior Republicans, people who were close relatives. If you think back to the days of the conflict, informers were traditionally taken away, they were interrogated and they were shot. You know, you remember those images of, you know, bodies lying at the border. That was what happened to informers. That wasn't what happened in this case, and it wasn't what happened in this case because there were so many people who were so close to those involved. Did they let them walk in and take those documents to say if you go back to conflict? This is how infiltrated you are. you have having a chance.
0: We'll return to that part, I think. But I think we, had, we need to reverse a wee bit. So, they've got this box of documents. They put it in the back of a car. Uh, what happens next to these physical documents?
2: Nothing at first happened, is what I understand. They were taken away and because there was so much heat around it and so many people were being arrested for a while, nothing happened. They were just taken away, they were stored, they were they were kept safely. Then, when they started going through them and they realised it wasn't going to be as easy to decipher what exactly was going on, then the job was given to two people, I believe, two quite young people, who were given the job of going through and matching up each address, codename, handler, with a person. And um, Sometimes there was more than one person in the house. What I was told was... Dennis Donaldson was one of the people who was named in, in those documents. His house was in it, his house in Aitnamona in West Belfast. But he was so trusted, so trusted by the the you know the hierarchy of the Republican movement that they refused to believe it was him. And for a time, the actual suspicion was another member of his family. They were like, well, we didn't. It's going to be a toad. It must be someone else in the house. Because it was the address that was linking it to the person rather... Than the actual name of the person itself, because they were coded and they were they were contained by codename. So some of them, I'm, you know, I understand that some of them they never managed to figure out who it was was the, the person who was informer. But some of them were very obvious, and it was very obvious who they who they were. Um, and a few years later, there was a letter sent that claimed to be from an ex-RUC special branch man that named some of those people on those documents. And that letter did not come from special branch; it came from within the Republican movement, because at that time the people named on it were people who had went off message, people who had went dissident, people who were involved themselves with the dissident movement, and so they used that opportunity to take the information they'd gathered in Castlereagh to try and out them.
0: So they've never been found, they have been collated or dealt with somehow. You know, will more information come out in time and are their names really known?
2: There's there's something there I think for both sides. So for Republicans, the people who were informers know that their former comrades, colleagues now know that they were. Some of them I'm told got knocks on the door and were told just, you know, the war's over, nothing's gonna happen to you. Don't show up at commemorations, don't show up at funerals, you're not welcome anymore. And they just went reclusive. Some of them left and went to other places, and some of them just brazened it out, you know, and just continued on as they were. Um, It became no longer viable to do anything about them because the level was so high, and obviously it also included people who would have been the loved ones, you know, people who people in in that movement loved, and they certainly weren't willing to either force them from the country or shoot them. But remember then, as well, that works both ways, because should there ever, and, you know, I don't believe there ever would be, a slide back into that kind of conflict... You know, the British government can say, you know, this is how heavily infiltrated you were at that stage. There's no future in this. But also people from who may well, well go off message, such as Tony Catney, who is now dead. He was one of the people who was contained in that letter. I interviewed him shortly after he was outed, if you like, um, in the letter that claimed to be from a former special branch officer. And he was wise enough to say this did not come from someone within the RUC. This came from someone with it, you know, my former friends, and you know they're trying to discredit me, and I can see what they're doing. Um, so there, there's a message there, I suppose, for people who might turn wander off into that dissident world. You know, remember we have this information about you, and we could make it public at any time. So
0: you mentioned the IRA being penetrated by this uh, intelligence network, etc., and informers. That was far more than they thought they were.
2: It's my understanding that this information really only related to the greater Belfast area. You know, anyone who was up in the northwest, that information would have been stored elsewhere. But yeah, I think it isn't just the numbers of people. I think it was the who those people were. So, you know, I've been told that, you know, there were people who were brothers of senior members of the Republican movement. I've been told that they were in some cases sisters, in some cases fathers, you know, people who they just didn't suspect and that fits in with what Dennis Bradley once said so, you know, Dennis Bradley, former priest but he was one of the people who was um, hired to do the, the sort of Book on the troubles. Basically, him and him and um, Robin Eames were had to come up with an idea of a future and legacy. How would we move forward? That report was rejected because one of the suggestions was that they give twelve thousand pound to every single person who lost someone, and that became controversial. But while he was creating that document and trying to find a way forward to legacy, they were given access to information that nobody had seen before, previously undisclosed information. And in a a very public interview, Dennis Bradley was asked, do you think that there could be a reconciliation commission and we could just open the files and allow all this information to be seen? And he said, yes, apart from one thing. And that's who the informers were, because there's too many of them. And I've seen exactly the level that that contained, and it would destroy communities and it would destroy families. It would turn brother against brother. It would turn neighbour against neighbour. So that ties in with what he said in that interview as well.
0: So to what extent do you think um, that this security penetration of the IRA led to the ceasefire, led to that political decision to abandon, as they would say an armed struggle, or... Were they going to do that anyway?
2: I think, you know, when you look back at that time, there was a number of things. You know, there was the fact that people were were, were weary of conflict and, and they genuinely wanted peace. I think that there was a real push towards peace in the Humes-Adams talks. Seeing that, I do think that a level of it might have been linked to the fact that they, you know, realised that they were so infiltrated. But also then you have to remember that infiltration was on both sides. These documents also included names of loyalists. And we know from various ombudsman reports since then the level of infiltration of loyalism um, as well in terms of you and some of those people who were allowed to carry out atrocities. And what what I think, you know, when I'm quietly on my own, I often wonder, to what degree was there actually in a war here? You know, was but well, who was controlling it? Sometimes you feel like, was it a big puppet show? And, you know, was there someone else pulling the strings? Because the level of infiltration of loyalist paramilitaries and, if it seems, of, of republican paramilitaries, you know, why could, that, the, the you know, a bridge not have been brought down in that much sooner? And you you can see in recent times with, you know, organisations like the new IRA, basically the intelligence agencies had them infiltrated to such a degree that when the British government said, that's it, they're done, finish them, they went in and wiped them out and they more or less don't exist anymore because their leadership is, or their alleged leadership is currently in prison. Um, so that I often wonder, you know, when you talk about the level of infiltration of those groups, what does that mean about the people who were infiltrating them? You know, what what does that say about the if you think if you in the late nineties, especially when those talks were going on, if you lost a loved one then, you'd be wondering, was that even necessary? What what could have happened to prevent that at that time?
0: I suppose one of the things you hear about you know, and leading on from your point there, and you hear it on the ground that people almost assume that that the IRA, for example, the provisional IRA, were so compromised, were so penetrated that basically they all were informers. Certainly, I remember being at school and teachers would have told you this, they're all informers, you know what I mean? But if that's the case, how did they exist at all? I mean, how how did they carry out paramilitary operations? I, I think that maybe that's, for me at least, that's where that conspiracy theory, if it, if you like to put it like that, some, somehow falls apart because why would they have been allowed to exist at all then and to what end?
2: I, I I don't believe it was the case that, you know, that they were infiltrated to the point that they couldn't have done anything without the intelligence agencies knowing. You know, when you talk about big things that happened, like, you know, the bombing of London and things like that, I don't think that that would have been allowed to go ahead given, the, the you know, the economic impact that had on the City of London. But I do... Wonder about when you talk about informers and people like Steakknife. You look at the many people that he killed while he was working for 1st Special Branch and then MI5, um, and he, you know, that man was in the pay of the state while he was doing that. If you look at people like Mark Haddock um, and the Mount Vernon UVF and the infiltration of them and the number of people they killed while they were in the pay of the state, you know, I assume, and we know that informers and covert human intelligence are used by law enforcement the world over, But you assume that if someone is being paid to be an informant, it's to save life, not to take life. And at what point, then, do you allow someone who is an informer to actually take people's lives? And I think that that is, you know, something that, as a journalist, and a security journalist, I find hard to get my head around because um, I know that we call it a dirty war, but that really is the most dirtiest aspect of it. You know, they were people's sons, and in one case someone's mother, who were, you know, murdered as informers, by someone who was working at the, uh, you know, the highest level of, of the British state as an informer. There's more to come out now. The, bit, you know, the the report being carried out by John Boucher will reveal more details of that. And I do think that that's part of the reason why the British government are keen <coughs> to have these new legacy proposals that sort of put an end to that because the level I think of infiltration and almost meddling that went on by the intelligence agencies, rather than safe life, to allow that to go ahead just so that they could keep the identity, identity of their informers secret. I think that that's something that no government would want coming out.
0: Alison Morris, security correspondent for the Belfast Telegraph. Thank you. This episode of The Belltel was produced by myself, Kieran Dunbar, with sound design by Graham Davidson.
1: You can follow The Belltel wherever you get your podcasts.